When are people going to see that nothing ain't never going to change unless somebody finally makes up his mind to stand up and fight? Damn. Netrich Radio presents Hopping Mad with Will McLeod and Arliss Bunny. Now, here's Will and Arliss. Welcome to Hopping Mad. I'm Arliss Bunny. This week, Will McLeod is traveling, and a funny thing happened on the way to the show. I thought I had put together the show and had everything all lined up and an interview and some help from some of our Hopping Mad associates, and sort of one by one by one, things kind of fell apart this week. Uh, I guess it happens. So what I've done is taken an interview that extended deep into Extra Mad. It's an interview we did on January 30th with Armando from Daily Coast. And it's about the emoluments clause, actually. And the interesting thing about it is that we also talked about NAFTA along the way. And both of those are still really timely subjects. So I thought I would bring back that interview in its entirety in the episode as a whole. And that's what the show would be about. So up next, we have Armando from Daily Coast here on Hopping Mad. We're back on Hopping Mad. Armando Lorenz is a well-known front pager at Daily Coast, a frequent contributor to KGRO in the Morning, and an attorney, and he's here to talk to us today about the emoluments clause of the Constitution. Armando, we've spoken on this show on the last episode of Hopping Mad about the emoluments clause, but would you refresh everyone quickly on both the domestic and foreign clauses? Yeah, absolutely. There are two clauses in the Constitution. Oh, by the way, good morning, everybody. Uh <laughs> The first that I've referred to is actually one that I think is clearer, and it comes from the Article 2 of the Constitution, and it, it reads that the president shall at stated times receive for his services a compensation which shall be neither increased nor diminished during the period for which he shall have been elected, and he shall not receive within that period any other emolument from the United States or any of them. In plainer English, the president gets his salary. Right now, as we know, it's $400,000 a year. We also know Trump says he's not going to accept it. Whether that's true or not, it's a Trump thing, so we don't know. But the other part is that he can't receive any other compensation or emolument from the federal government, any state government, or any local government. So that's all he can get. So the emoluments clause isn't affected by whether or not he takes the four hundred k. That's his own thing. It, oh, no, I agree. No, it has yeah. that has no bearing on its applicability. If he voluntarily says, I don't want it, well, that's on him. That's the only thing he can get. So you're absolutely right. And then the other, and the one that has garnered more attention, which is the Foreign Emoluments Clause, it's Article 1, Section 9 of the Constitution, which says, uh, no title or nobility shall be granted by the United States, and no person holding any office of profit or trust under him or under them, shall, without the consent of the Congress, accept of any present emolument, office, or title, of any kind, whatever, from any king, prince, or foreign state. Now, 
the the key word there, of course, is emolument. That's the one that everybody's talking about. It's called the emoluments clauses. And what it means by definition, uh, Merriam-Webster calls it the returns arising from office or employment, usually in the form of compensation or perquisites. Collins Dictionary of Law defines it as all salaries, fees, wages, persequits, and profits whatsoever. The meaning is actually pretty clear. You just can't, and it draws from English common law in the past, you can't have any situation where you're receiving something you want, some consideration from, in the case of the domestic emoluments clause, from any federal, state, or local government. And in the case of the foreign emoluments clause, it'd be from any foreign state or king. We have obviously many less kings now, but I guess probably the king of Saudi Arabia would be the one that'd be most in play now to see what Trump's business interests are, are there. But in general, it's more about foreign states. This matters in a way that people just don't realize, the foreign emoluments clause, because whatever holdings or, or business Trump is doing overseas almost certainly has to have some type of government imprimatur. That is, there's got to be a permit, perhaps there's a loan, maybe a tax credit. You know, an emolument could be any and all of these things, in fact, would be. So a loan uh, so from the, very, the Bank of China, for instance. Oh, that's absolutely it. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a clear emolument. I don't know that anybody would argue that. I was thinking more along the lines of people say, well, he has a hotel in Riyadh or Dubai or something like that. And he says, but, you know, so what? Well, the so what is he wouldn't have been able to own that hotel. He wouldn't have the permits to operate that hotel if he wasn't getting a consideration from the government. Well, that's and just the, the one, way it works. The one I hadn't thought about was things like trademark and copyright, yes. you know, granting of trademark and copyright in a variety of foreign countries because as a company, my company holds yeah. trademarks and copyrights. That's enormously expensive to do that country by country around the world. That's a, you know, that's a huge process. And getting through that is an enormous quagmire. And, you know, his all of a sudden are sailing through, as I understand it, in a number of places. Huh, imagine that. Imagine that. So the textual reading of this is, I think, fairly clear. I, I happen to think the case that's easiest to bring to court is the D.C. hotel, which Im- implicates, in my view, the, the domestic emoluments clause. Mm. Remember that the Trump Hotel in D.C. is under a lease of the old post office building. It's right. a lease with the GSA. It even contains a clause that says that no elected representative can have any interest in the lease. Obviously, now Donald Trump is an elected official. He is in violation of the lease. It should be canceled. It should have been canceled the moment he took the oath. The question I have then is, does the D.C. government have standing to challenge him under the emoluments clause over the old post office? Well, that's an interesting thought. I hadn't looked at it from the government's perspective. In that case, I think it's uh, it's an interesting question. I don't have an answer for you now, Will. I do know who I think would have standing, obviously, any competitor. Mm. If you get a progressive who owns a bed and breakfast, I think you could make an argument that they'd have standing because they said they could argue that they'd like to take over the lease. So literally the hotel business or anybody that's credibly saying, I want to get in the hotel business and take over this lease. Literally every bread and breakfast in D.C. then. Yes. And and I actually think it's an interesting marketing opportunity for uh, anybody who has a, you know, a residence or a guest house or a bed and breakfast that wants to get a little publicity. Here's your chance. Be the name plaintiff on our emoluments case. As you know, Crew has filed a lawsuit 
with you know an all-star team of legal scholars, Erwin Chemerinsky, Lawrence Tribe. Is this the one and, Zephyr Teachout is in? Yeah, Zephyr Teachout as well. They filed in the Southern District of New York. They got a good draw on the judge, actually. It's uh, Floyd Abrams' daughter, Ronnie Abrams. And she's not a good draw just because she's Floyd Abrams' daughter, but she's, uh, she's a, a very able judge. And also a little less married to an interpretation that would be harmful for any type of standing argument. She may accept the argument they're making on standing, which is based on a 1982 Supreme Court decision where environmental activists uh, sort of made a similar argument that they're going to incur burdens trying to uh, do what they do, which is monitor and, and look closely at the dealings of the government and its dealings. And they, here they make a similar argument, which was upheld as a basis for standing in the, in the 1982 case. Of course, I personally think that the uh, Lujan versus EPA case of 1993, which basically obliterated taxpayer standing, makes that harder. And if it got to the Supreme Court, it probably wouldn't go that far. But I think that people should realize that the point of the lawsuit, in my view, is not necessarily a win at the Supreme Court. It's to raise the issue to a much higher profile, to threaten Trump with extensive discovery, including things like his tax returns. Now, yeah, I do want to warn people about tax returns, even if they came in from discovery requests in such a case, they're almost certainly going to be under a protective order. So they won't be released to the public, most likely, unless something strange happens. Nonetheless, you know, at least somebody can see what's in his tax returns. So that does have that uh, benefit. But the, the main thrust of it is to, frankly, pressure him to abide by the emoluments clause. It's, it's a political lawsuit in a very good way. It's looking for remedy, a real remedy that could uh, basically force Trump to follow the strictures of the emoluments clauses. And that's its main purpose. And, and it, it, it would work, especially if somehow it's able to survive a motion to dismiss, which will almost certainly be the first major action in the case. So the question I have then is the best tactics for us to use. There were those various political action groups that created themselves just to attack Bill and Hillary Clinton. Should we do something similar to go after Trump and his family and just like have legal challenge after legal challenge after legal challenge just to go on a massive fishing expedition to see what pops up? Is is that going to be something effective? Because there's actually stuff there with Trump where there wasn't with the Clintons. Yeah, I, th I actually think that I wouldn't even call that fishing expedition. There's a number of avenues in your and I don't disagree with you at all. We need our own judicial watch. No question about it. Now, it's funny, they either reviled or celebrated David Brock is out there raising money and talking about fighting. He hasn't talked about forming a legal fund. And I, I think I'm, if I take your point correctly, uh, well, I agree with you. It would be better to use that money to basically try and draw as much information as you can about any number of scandals that already exist in the Trump administration. We're here talking about the monuments clause, but of course, there's many others. But the, in terms of uh, what we can do, I, I think FOIA is going to be an important vehicle here. There's, there should be FOIA on Rex Tillerson if and when he becomes Secretary of State. There should be FOIAs on Steve Mnuchin at Treasury. We, you know, let's be honest, these guys are corrupt and, and mendacious. Even if they say something formally through, say, the White House press office, you really can't believe it. Certainly not on face value. We've already seen that in the one week of the <laughs> yeah. Trump presidency. In such living color, it's even just hard to be serious about it. But I think 
<laughs> I mean, no, you just, remember? I mean, there was a time when, oh yeah, I'll shade the truth, I'll do this. These guys flat out lie. Yeah, and they've been lying from the first Saturday that Sean Spicer stood up there and said Trump had the biggest longer crowd in history. Oh, they've been lying longer than that. Oh, yeah. Oh, I agree. But as president, you know, it's a whole different thing. And I think about that West Wing episode where CJ just absolutely blows up at the rest of the team and says, if you make me a liar out there, I can't do my job because they won't believe me anymore. (laughs) Yeah, I know. (laughs) Um, So I guess what I'm hearing you two saying is there's actually some validity in thinking in terms of being the little flock of birds chasing the big bird away from the nest. In other words, you know, peck, 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 peck. I do. I do. And here's why, in some respects, people are being a little bit unfair with our our representatives. They have mouthpieces, but they have no committees. They can't issue Mm -hmm. any subpoenas. They can't make these things. Jason Chaffetz is the head of the oversight committee. And... By all lights, frankly, the Oversight Committee should be leading the charge on these things. But it's Jason Chaffetz, so we know that's not going to happen. Well, didn't Chaffetz uh, decide to investigate someone who was reporting on the scandals rather than investigating the scandals himself? He, he wants to investigate the ethics officer who said that Trump is violating the Emoluments Clause. Yeah. It's amazing. So I want to go back again to judicial remedies. What's even okay. state courts... Or even the Supreme Court, what's possible for them to determine? I mean, you're saying, I mean, could they actually say something like, you must divest? Yes. Absolutely. Really? Of course. That's really... Think of it this way. It was the Supreme Court that ordered Richard Nixon to turn over the tapes. Oh, that's right. Okay. All right. But, okay, so let's now talk about the Supreme Court. And here's one of your favorite subjects. Standing in the Supreme Court is their own personal political football. They use standing however they feel like it on any given day. It actually, there is no definition for standing, as best I can tell, from... The best, yes. It's whatever they want. A perfect example, the Hobby Lobby case. Hobby Lobby did not have standing. They were not asked to do anything. They weren't paying any money for anybody's health insurance that covered birth control. As you know, there was right. a workaround whereby the insurance company covered it. Hobby Lobby had no harm. But the Supreme Court, because it wanted to, decided it did. Now, there, there should be good reasons for the standing doctrine. But the fact is, when humans are judges, it just becomes a, a device for playing games. I mean, just as an aside, my own feeling is that the court should have that discretion taken away from it. We probably should establish a rule and say, who has standing? In fact, I think when it comes to constitutional questions, I would favor a congressional act, which said that there is taxpayer standing to enforce the Constitution. Congress can do that, by the way. Wouldn't that but put us in court Congress. with every single taxpayer on the face of the planet yes. who didn't want to pay for his little percentage of an aircraft carrier? Well, no, because it's a, for constitutional. I mean, you go, unless you're arguing that, a, that an aircraft carrier is unconstitutional. And if that's your argument, oh, I see what you're saying. make okay. it, then you lose. The, but the, yes, any taxpayer could sue for saying the war in Iraq is illegal or rather or unconstitutional. You're because lose, Congress hasn't declared you, war. You know, yeah. But you should have standing to sue. So and my let question. The courts decide. I actually believe that. But that's an aside from what's happening now. That, yeah, that's right. right. Sort of a, that's just sort of an ivory tower discussion. Well, my question then is, I, I understand the way I understand it is that anybody can sue anybody else for anything 
at any time. It's a question of whether you'll win. Is this a situation where we can throw as much as we can at the administration and the government and see what sticks? Is that something that we ought to try? Or are there better ways to spend our time? I mean, on things like the emoluments clause, on things like, say, the Muslim ban, I think courts are only recourse. I mean, think of this way. You have three branches of government. Trump is going to be Trump. The Republicans in Congress, at least unless we can take the one of the houses back in 2018, is going to be what they are. So what's left? Where can you win these fights? You have to win them in the 2018 election or you have to win some in court. Okay, so now we get to That's my, my view of it. I have a theory. If the GOP wanted to impeach Trump on the emoluments clause, that would already be in process. And in fact, if a Democrat was in the White House today, that would absolutely be in process already. So clearly it's not in there. They don't view it as in their vested interest to do that right now. But Trump is still useful to them. But there is a point in time at which Trump is not going to be useful to them. And, you know, as you see the specter of Russia rise and as you see more and more and as you see his... um, Approval ratings. Yeah, his approval ratings fall and his erratic behavior and all of those things. That really is pressing some Republican members of the GOP. At some point in time, they're going to be looking around for a stick. And I think they're not going to be able to impeach him on his sanity, on his literal psychological illness. They're not going to be Mm -hmm. able to impeach him. It's going to be difficult to go after him on Russia because proving that in a really open way to the American people is going to be tricky because there are sources that you don't want to divulge in the process of that that Congress is going to want to keep under their belt. But well, if they get but. mad enough about those things, can't they use the emoluments clause then? In other words, isn't that the obvious stick? It's just lying there. It's like leaving a gun in a holster. And when they need it, it will be there. Maybe? Yeah, I think that's certainly a possibility. I think, frankly, that the Republicans are in a quandary themselves on what to do. And uh, they want what they want, right? but they are, I think they're a little scared of what Trump is, too. Well, and I think that right now, there's a lot of, they're still afraid of Trump voters, but there's going to be a point in time, my guess is like 18 months from now, when they've just had it. And then the emoluments clause, that big club of the emoluments clause is lying there. Yeah, it's an easy grab. And they can say, look, we've looked at this and we were waiting to see how it shook out, but it creates too many conflicts. And this violates the Constitution. Yeah. And we we urged President Trump to divest. And he doesn't. And they said, well, we've got a constitutional crisis now, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, President Pence, come on down. Yeah, they could absolutely see that kind of uh, scenario going if and when they see that as in, in their interest. That's the thing with Republicans. At this point, what do they want becomes an important question. We know they always want tax cuts. And Trump will give them tax cuts, but the budget cut part of it is it becomes yeah. more difficult unless there's a workaround on the bird rule. But they do have the reconciliation process. You can handle all budget matters that do not add to the deficit uh, through reconciliation, but you can't handle budget busting or deficit increasing uh, legislation through reconciliation. So it's important that the Senate uh, Democrats hold firm on a lot of these things to basically deny a lot of what the Republicans want. The Republican agenda, as opposed to the Trump agenda, is very dependent on getting either reconciliation or the 60 votes. 
Trump, as president, holds a lot of power. Someone who was, I think it's Jed Ligum at, at Think Progress, actually laid out a pretty interesting refra. I don't know if you guys remember refra. It's what's behind yeah. uh, Hobby Lobby, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And uh, Well, I'm in Indiana, could, so refra is Oh, so you know fresh. about it, and you had your own refra, yes. Yes. So you know what that means. And, and the theory on the Muslim ban on refra is that very clearly, if this was the type of law that that was trying to be applied to citizens or people already residing in the United States, it would be a violation of the First Amendment, not just with REFRA, but with the First Amendment itself. But here, REFRA becomes more interesting because in a REFRA decision authored by Judge Alito, Justice Alito, REFRA was sort of internationalized for the U.S. government. <laughs> it was kind of a weird thing. So who had standing under REFRA? Again, here we come standing again. Standing again. Muslim refugees may have standing to challenge this executive order by Trump on that. So this goes back to Will's point about uh, our courts, where we go. And my argument is yes. And actually, Arles, you made an interesting point that I forgot to to mention before, which is, well, what courts? State courts have concurrent jurisdiction over federal questions. It could be that we want to be in California state courts a lot with some of these cases. If we can get right plaintiffs... And whatnot, because uh, interpretation of federal questions now, there's removal rights, but you know, removing to a federal court in California doesn't really help the Trumps or Republicans that much. The Ninth Circuit's pretty yeah, solidly the, yeah, democratic. A, exactly. Armando, you were talking about standing and refra, and I'm interested in standing issues in general right now because of this whole emoluments clause thing. So go ahead and continue on that line. Well, what I was talking about is one of the an ironic twist we'll see how listen the one thing i want to say is i'm a legal realist Uh, if if you're not familiar with the term it's basically that judges make up their reasoning based on the result they want and that is frankly true i mean they isn't that how humans work in general yes yes (laughs) we all have that in us no question about it but you know the lawyers and legal scholars long had the conceit that no we're different we look at the facts and we apply the law and yada yada and it's you know it's not true but it becomes especially <laughs> there are some things that are just so black and white that there's nothing that can be done and that, that's what you'd like about some uh, lines of cases but standing as you were mentioning Arles, is whatever you know the judges decide particularly the supreme court they decide it Basically, or decide not to even mention it in the Hoppy Lobby cases and in the original ACA cases, there was no standing. There was not even case or controversy yet. Remember, the first case arose before anybody even had a duty to do anything. It was premature. It should have been dismissed as not ripe, uh, which is another doctrine, but forget That's that. That's right. You're right about that. Yeah. <laughs> we all do this, but they wanted to decide the case because that's what they do. And the Supreme Court. I've always said people think of it as a court. It's a political branch of government. It decides cases that are political. You don't see them deciding contract cases. So and when it comes to standing, you know, when they want to hear the case, they do. And there's something that's not wrong about it, but there's something that's not right. It's part of the political decision to decide whether you want to hear a case or not. But here's the problem I have. When they close off standing in that absolutely biased way, the taxpayer lawsuit decision that I mentioned to you, Lujan, yeah, which in, is, in essence is designed to foreclose activist lawsuits without right. some nominal plaintiff. That was an absolutely naked partisan act by the right wing of the court. And then some of the more moderates you know, play the game and say, well, I see the merits of not having taxpayer lawsuits. Okay, 
that was a, a very partisan decision, Scalia, of course, and it, it shouldn't surprise anybody that it was done to favor a conservative viewpoint to allow executive branch to run roughshod over citizens. But guess what? When they decided they wanted them, they decided that people like Judicial Watch and whatnot will have standing on different settings. Now, Judicial Watch is very clever. Most of their cases are FOIA cases where everybody does have standing. But uh, there are other groups. I mean, the entire attack on the Affordable Care Act was through people who just didn't really have standing. Yes, they got named plaintiffs. But there was really, if you applied traditional standing outside standing doctrine outside of the political cases, if this was just, you know, company A versus company B, they would have thrown it out because there just, just simply wasn't any. And it becomes more interesting now with REFRA because, again, in a partisan decision, Justice Alito has expanded uh, REFRA standing to make it apply sort of to government action outside the United States, which will create a possibility of standing for Muslim refugees who are going to be denied in, in light of uh, Trump's uh, executive order. Now, in the emoluments clause setting, I do think that you'd have a better argument if you had some hotel chain arguing about this, because there's, there's a pretty easy one, two, three on standing there. There are people, foreign governments will be favoring Trump because he's president. Domestic governments will be favoring Trump because he's president. Those become a fairly easy one, two, three standing argument. And frankly, I find it hard to see how it wouldn't work. But the the reality is we don't have that. So we need to look at, at least for the time being, we need to try to expand and look for courts that will be sympathetic to a more expansive standing doctrine. That's one of the reasons so I this assume is crew... We not only want to be a flock of birds pecking endlessly, but we want to be a flock of birds pecking endlessly who basically the right shop courts. jurisdictions. Yes, we're going we're gonna to have to forum shop. There's no question about it. And indeed, the Cruz lawsuit pretty clearly is, is a forum shop. They filed in New York, not Washington, D.C. Seriously? Yes. Huh. They filed in the Southern District of New York. Can I take this on a minor tangent? This is something that really, really infuriates me about the left. We always fall for this don't sink to their level nonsense. I hear so many liberals saying, well, we shouldn't politicize the court. It's too late for that. The court's already politicized. The court has been politicized since it's existed. If you look at the way that that things have worked since the founding of the republic. Uh, And yet we always fall for this kind of wide-eyed hopeful nonsense that maybe if we just act slightly differently, reality will be what we want it to be rather than what is. I think we need to have a much more hard-nosed, realistic look at the way our government actually functions and respect the current structure of it, which means that the court is politicized. So don't do the other side's job for them and appoint conservatives. Absolutely. And, 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 And one of the things that's interesting about that, and I think you'll see it here, there is a tradition, to follow your tangible, there is a tradition that generally trial, district court judges and in some circuits, circuit uh, court judges are generally the uh, senator from the home state has a lot of say in who that can be. So when you're in Texas, that, that's why you'll find that in the Fifth Circuit, which is where Texas is, we've had less success because we follow tradition of giving the home state senator a great deal of input on on who will be named judges. But I'm very curious to see what happens, because I don't believe Trump's going to follow that. He's going to nominate whoever he wants, and he's going to take, he's going to want to just uh, roll over the this tradition. And it is a tradition, and it's a longstanding tradition, that home state senators have a great deal say of who sits on the bench. 
in the federal courts in their state. When Trump, and I believe he will, is urged and does it by some of the extremists who are around him to ignore that tradition, how that's going to play both with Democrats and, I'll say this, Republicans in the Senate. They, the senators like their prerogatives. I mean, they like to be able to say this, that, and the other. And, and they have a sense of the long term that presidents don't always have. Right. But at the same token, Trump makes things very different. And in this sense, he doesn't play by anybody's rules. I mean, listen, George W. Bush was, prior to this, the worst president of my lifetime. But he, by and large, played by the rules. He, he would test the rules sometimes, I mean, in terms of the political rules. Of course, he violated the international rules of, and committed war crimes. But that's, again... <laughs> well, it's... That, I that, mean, it's, within the it's terrifying country, that I look back on, you know, W's reign as, you know, the good old days. You know, at this oh, point God. in time, it's just, it's chilling. But I do think that some of this is all, is mitigated by the fact that Trump hasn't yet figured out that he isn't king. In other words, he announced the other day that he was going to, you know, get right to work on term limits for all of Congress. Did he? And I, I missed th- that one. And I was, <laughs> yeah, because that's the thing you're going to be able to get Congress to, you know, to push through. That, you know, that. Well, it's unconstitutional according to the Supreme Court. Well, there and, was a term limits provision yeah. that was shut down. But so, but listen, courts can change their mind. But that's funny that he just said that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I think that, uh, yeah, you're right that the presidents don't generally have the same patience, but. Trump puts the lack of patience, frankly, lack of sanity on a whole other level. I'm actually curious to get your reaction, if I could just turn the tables on you. Trump is basically signaling that he wants to rescind NAFTA. To my knowledge, the United States has never withdrawn from a trade agreement in its history that I know. Maybe I'm missing one or other. What, what are you, what's your reaction to that? How do you think that's going to play? Well, okay, so my reaction comes to that in a variety of ways, one of which is that Right behind China, Canada is my biggest trading partner as, as a company. So I rely on NAFTA all the time, every day. I ship to Canada. So I export. So for me, NAFTA is God's gift to trade agreements. Because, for instance, when I export to Brazil, the duties on what I export is as much as the product itself, which is astonishing. The moral to the story is I'm pro-NAFTA as an exporting manufacturer. But the reality is that NAFTA has done some damage in this country, not as much as people think manufacturing was leaving this country anyway. And nobody knows that more clearly than somebody who spends 60 hours a week in manufacturing. But the reality is that Trump is saying he's going to negotiate a better treaty. Well, you have to do that with willing trade partners. And right now, I'm not even sure the president of Mexico is speaking to him. And on top of that, certainly Trudeau up in Canada isn't going to negotiate any better a deal for the United States than the one the United States already has. I'm actually curious if what could, a better deal would look like. Actually, that's, that's one question I've always had. If I, could, if I could ask something about NAFTA, because you are more of an expert on this than I am, Arliss, my understanding is that it has actually in some ways been helpful in certain manufacturing capacities on the other side. It means that car companies can build a factory in the U.S. 
and increase the production or Canada or Mexico because those vehicles will then be sold across the borders without massive it actually means that there are more factories there's more of an economy and that a lot of the manufacturing job losses in the US and in Canada are due to automation rather than well, you know here's the thing. Like, um does any among us think that Mexico and Canada are exporting more into the United States than we are exporting into them cuz if you do you're wrong We've crossed the threshold with Mexico. The U.S. exports more into Mexico than Mexico sends into the U.S. And it's been long true with Canada. So, I mean, there are some disadvantages to NAFTA. But in the mean, in the norm, NAFTA has benefited the United States immensely. And of course... And, and U.S. manufacturers up. and workers as a result, right? Well, there have been manufacturing job losses as a result of NAFTA. And that's documented. We know that to be the case. But... Those jobs would have gone somewhere. They weren't going to stay here, no matter how you look at it. But so, see, that's why I say to say that it's NAFTA's fault is not true. I think yeah. what NAFTA did was direct them to Mexico as opposed Exa to that's right. Vietnam or China. That's right. It is the greatest fantasy that Republicans and Democrats both continue to propagate that manufacturing will return, quote-unquote, return to this country. We will continue to be good at manufacturing some things, says a manufacturer. But those narrow niches are exactly that. They are narrow niches. Because think about it right now. China is losing manufacturing jobs to Vietnam and yep. to India so, and to Pakistan. So we aren't in a trade war with China. Mm -hmm. we, it's, this is... This is the one way in which Tom Friedman was right. The world is flat in terms of how the need for certain kinds of manufacturing is melding and moving around the world. And, and we can't stop that. That's standing in the way of a tsunami. That's not something that any legislative thing in this country is going to stop, no matter how protectionist you get. Do you mind me asking one last devil's advocate question about your business specifically? Mm -hmm. So you are going to automate the process, which will not lead to job losses, but will massively increase your production capacity, right? Correct. We're going to some C we're adding some CNC machining. And when that happens, you'll be able to increase your production, but you're not going to be creating any new jobs with that, right? Uh, actually, we probably will be creating new jobs, ultimately, because there are aspects of our process that can be done more efficiently, some of the basic processes. But the handwork that comes after that is vastly better done by humans, and mm -hmm. we'll need more humans to do it. But you're going to need far fewer humans, though, than you would if you weren't automating, but were just increasing production and could somehow afford that, right? Correct. Remember that that CNC machine was built here in the United States and is serviced yeah. by a company that comes in on a service contract to service it, and the people who came in, come in to train us, and the, you know... The people who build the blades and the people who build the bits and the people who build the, all of that is built in the United States. And so my point then that I've been driving towards is even if we do have some massive explosion in manufacturing, all of those manufacturing jobs that used to be hand-built, none of them are coming back, right? Like right. some of oh, them might. But... No, they're not coming back. No. I'm, I'm sorry to take this on that tangent. Like that's just no. the point I wanted to. Can I go back to the original question which was that, that I had anyway, which was <laughs> what's the better deal on NAFTA? Keeping it. I know, no, from what's Trump talking about? What is he going to do? Oh, I mean, I, I can't. Uh, I mean, he, leaving it is basically saying, okay, you're going to have high tariffs and we're going to have high tariffs. Right. Which That's will kill more jobs. He's going to call. Yeah, which will kill jobs. 
Yeah, of course it will. I mean, that's the whole point. Trade, you can't look at trade as, well, how many jobs did a trade deal? It's uh, specifically give me and take away from him. That's not how trade works. Well, and I, it's, in modern monetary it's, theory, it's designed, it's designed to make both countries more prosperous. I mean, yes. listen, I know everyone hates Ricardo these days, but it's true. You know, if, you know, you, this country has advantage, comparative advantages in one thing, we have comparative advantages in others. If we can basically make this work for both of us, it works for both of us. We can both do better. And indeed, I think one of the big advantages of the NAFTA was, in essence, to blunt a country like China and take away some of its advantage. I know that, at least as as it's reported in the auto industry, there is tremendous coordination by multinationals between their operations in Canada, the United States, and Mexico. And it's made the automotive industry in these countries much more competitive. American cars sell better because they're being made better. They're being made more efficiently. I would just argue that that's not comparative advantage. That's the fact that our customers, we have a market access to other countries. And because our manufacturers open businesses there, those customers can afford to buy our goods because they're being paid. The, the better off our customers are, the more products of ours they can afford to buy. And that's a good thing because, well, you know, my comparative advantage, it's Portugal and the and England. England. Like yeah. that's the main Portugal argument. Portugal and England advantage, right? And so England lost a pretty okay wine industry like they weren't ever going to be france but they had a decent wine industry and yeah it's sad that they gave it up and portugal lost their textile industry which means that portugal got a great wine industry and england got the industrial revolution so right i mean it was a bad deal for portugal in that sense but you know that that takes foresight i mean how it turns out is is something else but can it can it can i just uh, pick there which is about better off why does Trump want to build the wall? He says because Mexicans want to pour into the United States, which frankly isn't, true. isn't uh, it's true. Go- it's going the other way right now. It's really going the other way. But why is it going the other way now? Because there was a lot of, obviously, a lot of Mexican immigration. NAFTA is one of the main reasons why immigration is less of a problem now, because the standard of living in Mexico has moved up. Exactly. But you, you got to understand, it doesn't feel like less of a problem, Armando. And, you know, our politics run on conservatives' precious little feelings. Not reality. Yeah, yeah. It's, I like. It's not about who's got the facts. It's the Facebook memes, man. Right. I know, but this is. But isn't this just basic common sense? You know, one of the things. Me- prosperity in Mexico. No, it's not. I'm sitting in Indiana. Problem. It is not common sense here. It is their fifis. That is, and as Democrats, we do a terrible job of telling the story, telling our story. We're astonishingly bad at it. And we continue to be bad at it. And so we let the Republicans run the bases with, you know, these stories about how we're all losing our jobs to China when that's not the case. We're losing jobs to Canada when that's not the case. We're losing our jobs because we're losing our jobs. And we make this incredible mistake when we always bind trade to employment. Employment is a domestic issue. It is a separate problem. And we need to start thinking of it. As its own thing. We have to start looking at job guarantee programs. We have to start looking at all kinds of other creative ways to solve the problem. Trade is not the way you solve that problem. Trade is not ever going to be the way to solve that problem again. Our country has, our technology has evolved past that. Which is why we need to start, we either need a a new works project administration or we need basic income. We need something that can help us 
make sure that everyone's okay. We need we need some solution that recognizes that some people who do, who are out of work are probably never going to work again. We absolutely have to face up to our re, our, our need for redistribution of income. Yes, I, I think that's absolutely right. We have to. We the rich are undertaxed in this country immensely. The super rich are really undertaxed. I agree with one theory that seemed to undergird the Affordable Care Act, which is benefits, basic necessities for living should be guaranteed by our government, not by our employers. The reality is healthcare shouldn't be tied to employment. It should be tied to being a, a resident of the United States. Guaranteed income should be a an American issue, not a company issue. So I think I'm agreeing with Will here, but just trying to to put it in a context that I understand, which is what should be the government's job and what should be, what do we not want the government involved in? Healthcare, education, safety, and security, those are government functions. We shouldn't be fobbing them off on employers. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> that would be great. Now, um, Don't you agree? Get, and yes, we I, efficient about it. I completely agree. But let's get back to um, emoluments, because that's where we started all this. Ah, yes. what, how is it that the Trump team thinks, I mean, they keep saying that they've talked to lawyers and they believe that the emoluments clause doesn't apply to the presidency. He thinks that applies to everybody but him. I don't even understand the legal argument. What's he trying to say? Well, there was a legal argument, but let me let me update you on the news as the, the attorney who wrote a memorandum on, on his actions actually accepts that the emoluments clause does apply to the presidency. That's actually not a contested issue vis-a-vis Trump. There was a, I call him a legal scholar, I, I thought his argument was just so ridiculous that I questioned him. A fellow named Seth Tillman who sort of said, well, it's not an office of trust because, and then he came up with some cockamamie reading some other clause arguments. But Trump's lawyer doesn't argue that. But that what she does argue is that emoluments only means profit. To wit, with regard to the D.C. lease, her argument would be that's a fair bargain. I'm paying fair consideration for it. And therefore, uh, it, and I don't derive an unnatural profit from it. So therefore, that's not an emolument. And conversely, if a foreign dignitary pays for a room, the market raid, he's not giving me a profit. Though, of course, you're making a profit. But sorting out it. profits from standard operating costs, that's... That's like oh no! It's, it's I mean, a, it's first of all, it's insane. Yeah. Second of all, it's not what emoluments mean anyway. Uh, it simply doesn't mean that. Third, let me just give my basic why I think the DC lease case is a slam dunk. There is a clause in the lease that says that you can't do this. If I don't enforce that clause, what's my consideration for that? Are you paying me more money for it for not throwing you out? Why can't I hold you hostage and double your rent? You know what I mean? Yeah. The So it's a gift to Trump from the GSA. That is as clear an emolument, a government emolument. I believe that the domestic emoluments clause is clearly being violated here. When it comes to the D.C. lease, I think that is as clear a problem as any. I don't understand why he didn't just create a company. I mean, to me, if I was his lawyer, I said, look, this D.C. lease thing is kind of tricky. Just give it to your kids. That way your name's not on it. And we can say, well, your kids are different than you. And therefore, there's no emolument or there's no and there's no violation of the lease. Trump didn't care. Would that work, though? Arguably, it, it certainly gives him an argument. I think the problem becomes, is it real or is it a sham transaction? Uh, well, and the Jared's way the Trump working or- in the White House. Right. There's Jared working in the White House. Plus, uh, they all work for the Trump organization. What are they going to do? Not work for the Trump organization? It, it, he has to untangle. 
But what he really needs to do is simply cut loose. And if it's basically, if he doesn't want us to know that he really isn't that rich, he can just do a paper transaction basically gifting, but then someone's going to have to pay a gift tax. I think that's one of the problems, too, for him. There's a tax consequence uh, on gifting. A real sale would create some type of gain, but it's going to be a long-term gain, so it's not going to be that bad a tax hit for him. Plus, frankly, I'm not sure that he has that much equity. I know everyone sort of just let that go now, but I really don't think he's a billionaire. Uh, oh, no, I don't think so either. I I don't uh, think he's a one billionaire, let alone a multi-billionaire. I, I really don't. And I know people get this because if you look at it, he doesn't have – he has some real estate, but not as much as you think. Most of his business is the branding business. He licenses his name right. to different things. And he has some minority stakes where he gets a little kicker, 10% here and there in projects as well. But, I mean, as a real estate mogul, he's really not. He has two buildings in New York. One is basically already sold. I mean, Trump Tower has its commercial lease space, but basically the, the apartments are, you know, that's a secondary market now. Owners sell to, to other people. And he owns the lease at 40 Wall Street, which is a building, obviously, on Wall Street. That's a pretty good purchase that he made. But that's it. Here's a guy who's got two buildings in New York. He plays the big mogul. He's not. Yeah. He's well, a branding guy. I think maybe it was David, maybe it was you on David's program that made the point that the guys who are the real estate moguls in Me. in New York don't even don't even think of him in the they, same breath. Mary Ty, Mary Ty, very, I, Mary Ty. He was really very smart, probably the top real estate analyst in New York in Manhattan. You know, she was asked about Trump. Yeah, he's nobody. I mean, he he means nothing to my life. I mean, Trump Tower's gone. Forty Walls, a nice Pete property, but you know that's basically it. Ironically, Jared Kushner's family is not. They're actually pretty big players. <laughs> yes. The, the irony is that the Kushners are pretty big players in real estate, but much more so than the Trump. Trump has got a very nice branding business. I mean, it, you know, people make fun of uh, Donnie Jr. What do they call him? Uh, Uday and Kuse. Uh, Donnie <laughs> Jr. Donnie Jr. actually was the one that convinced his father to do the licensing stuff and to move away from being the principal in real estate deals. Yeah, uh, I don't it was think very, his kids are idiots, actually. I think his kids are... Are, um, yeah, Ivanka's very impressive. If she wasn't yeah. named Trump, she'd have a real future in politics. I personally think this four years will ruin her reputation forever. And I think yeah. it's going to ruin a lot of reputations. I think that's the one thing that strikes me in about the people who are dealing with Trump. How do they think this is all going to end? I think they're shocked that they got this far. I think they have I, no I think they have no vision forward. I think they're just buried in events right now. I think that's probably true. But the way I would look at it is I don't want my name associated with Trump. Uh, <laughs> yeah. With Trump, I mean, I, I think that one of the guys, I think Evan McMullen has become a very interesting figure. And it'd be interesting to see uh, if he becomes a major figure in the Republican Party after Trump. Because I think, look, one of the things I, I'm looking at, and I'd never do these things, is shorting the stock market. I think the stock market's living in a dreamland. Oh, absolutely. If I... <laughs> Yes. <laughs> I mean, they, that's they, another they, whole show, but yes. Yes, it's another show. It's 21,000. Here's a guy who's basically going to spark a trade war. Do you think the economies are going to be good in the world? Oh, by God, the way, no. the Dow Jones Industrial uh, Companies, you know where they do business? All over the world. Yeah. And so if the world suffers, they suffer. There's not just helping the United States. You can't, there's no way of just saying, well, I'm just going to help my country. Well, that doesn't, it doesn't work that way anymore. No, it really doesn't. It's and I mean there are all kinds of things on the you know coming on the track. China's got some pretty deep economic problems. Yep. 
you know, the UK Russia's, is going, Russia's got no money. Oh, yeah. Russia's in huge trouble. The UK's going through Brexit in the not too distant future. And that's going to be a mess. So, you know, huge mess is coming in multiple directions. I, the stock market's in trouble and they're just not paying attention. But again, another whole show. Can you distinguish in the emoluments clause? They talk about a lot of different public sources. They talk about kings and governments and you know, states and that kind of thing. But then there are also private sources of payment. And Trump certainly gets money from both sides. The private money that he receives from foreign sources, does that fall under the emoluments clause? Well, it's a complicated response. Generally speaking, let's say it's just some private citizen in Saudi Arabia who has absolutely nothing to do with the government. And he just does a deal with Trump. That wouldn't be a an emolument from a foreign state. That would be an individual. The problem is places like Saudi Arabia, the state is all these private people. There's I was just going to say there's no separation. You picked the wrong country if you wanted to have right. separation. But Saudi Arabia is an important country to look at this. And Dubai, yeah. because a lot of what he does is happens there. Now, then you look at the Bank of China, which you pointed out before. That is a government-owned bank. That's going to be an emolument, too. The reality is the idea of it, and I think the principle behind the emoluments clauses needs to be recognized. I, would, I, I handled it textually for you because I know that's how the conservatives like to look at it. But a, a purpose analysis makes it even more clear. Why is there a prohibition on foreign emoluments? Because the founders were deadly serious about it. This wasn't something they left. My understanding is this wasn't something they left to a casual interpretation. They left a lot of things open to common sense. This was something they spelled out very clearly because they had specific concerns based on the immediate past history. Absolutely. It's very clear that what Trump is doing is exactly what they were thinking of 200 years ago. 250 yes. years ago, when they were writing these clauses, it was about this. Exactly. It was about this. And you argue in your Daily Coast Post for a broad reading. And would you talk to people about the difference between a narrow reading, a conservative reading of the Emoluments Clause, and a broad reading, and why a broad reading really actually does make sense? Well, let me give you an example that emerged early in the transition period. The Trump Organization was looking for certain government permits to be part of a conglomerate that's going to build a high-rise in Buenos Aires, Argentina. And Trump has a close business associate who was close to the president of Argentina, who was with him the night of the election. Not, you know, a few days later, they were saying, okay, now we won. I mean, this is my editorializing a little bit, but they call the president of Buenos Aires and says, now we won. I, I can get you stuff from Trump if you can get Buenos Aires to give us the permits we need. Huh. That sounds very specifically like exactly what James Madison was talking about. It does, doesn't it? Now, but the counter-argument, the narrow interpretation would be, he's just getting a permit. That's not a profit. That's not money. So yes, it is. It turns into money. He gets to build a building. Yeah. It's like saying a trademark isn't money. A patent, I'm just going to give you the patent on this. That's money. That's an emolument. That's a consideration. And the very narrow reading that the attorney from Morgan Lewis, who wrote the memorandum on Trump's behalf of on his plans, has narrowed it to say, well, it's only the profit. And you, you said the very good question. Well, wait, how do I calculate the profit even under your theory? What's the profit for a room? 
you know, tax-wise, I'm sure Trump would probably say he's not making anything. Uh, do you consolidate them? Do you consolidate the entire Trump organization? How much do you assign uh, front office cost uh, at the parent level to the sub? Listen, you know, these are questions that anybody that's engaged in calculation of damages in a business law setting knows that these are hard questions. It's beyond the point, in my view, as I've just highlighted to you. The Argentina example is seeking an emolument from a foreign nation. In that case, it was Argentina. And it's, uh, there's a question of bribery, of course. The president's going to do a favor on the government's dime so he can personally get an emolument from a foreign country. But, of course, it's that's what you just said. This is what James Madison and Alexander Hamilton had in mind, exactly what they had in mind. And we don't have to guess because it's in the Federalist Papers. They spell it it's out not, there. Absolutely. Uh, so the hypothetical then here is we've got this Argentina case. Let's say we can get it into the court and we can challenge him on the foreign emoluments Argentina case. Mm-hmm. What are the remedies? Well, the remedy would be, let's suppose we go through standing uh, and we solve all our problems and boom, we win. And, and the Argentina uh, wasn't a hypothetical. It was a real thing in the beginning. I believe they've abandoned it since because it looks so bad that they are not pursuing that now. But suppose it would, that that's the case and I have standing and a court rules it's a violation of the foreign emolument. The real remedy, the proper remedy is impeachment for a high crime and misdemeanor, in my view, because what you're talking about is deliberate violation of the Constitution. In essence, remember when Trump puts his hand on the Bible and, and raises his right hand and says, I swear to protect and defend the Constitution, he's breaking that oath. That's a basis for impeachment, I believe. I think that's pretty clearly a high crime and misdemeanor. Are they going to do that? No, they're not going to do that. So what's the remedy a court could do? A court could undo the deal and say you are ordered to undo that deal. Who's to make Trump comply with the order? Well, listen, this is a basic problem of how our government structures. If you believe in the co-equal branches and you believe that courts have power, it's the power that people will respect the orders. Now, let's sure, I can issue an order of arrest, but the president himself would not be subject to an order of arrest, it seems to me. I think that's pretty clear. Yeah. But you could... Remember, the deal itself would be held by the Trump organization, and you can basically haul in the Trump organization and find them and do all sorts of things to enforce your order. But at the end of the day, as in all orders, frankly, there's got to be a respect. If there's an order against Will McLeod tomorrow to do something, pay money, what happens if he doesn't pay? Well, the other the guy tries to find your assets, he'll look for your bank accounts, see if you own property, try to repossess your car, whatever he can do, right? That, right. That's how that... That that's how that the normal process. But what if they can't? What if Will McLeod doesn't have anything? What if Will McLeod just says, "Hey, do what you will. I don't have anything. I'm judgment proof." Well, there's nothing that can be done on that unless the court itself decides to, they're going to put you in jail. But remember, we have a constitutional provision that you can't. Je- there's no more debtors' prisons. We can't even do that. So at the end of the day, what courts can do is very much dependent on the respect they have. So. That means that we really do need to rely on Congress. We can get rulings and then we would have to go to Congress and say he's violating the Constitution and expect them to act. So if I we think do what's get interesting the... about it is you need an actual party who's, look, who's looking to do it. In that sense, again, suppose I have a party, I have standing, I have an order, and the order says Trump organization has to give up that permit. It's enforceable against Trump organization. Of course, it's not enforceable against the government of Argentina, but it is enforceable against the Trump organization. They're here. How can you make them do it? Well, the, the coercive things the government can uh, do, the court could fine them, uh, 
$10,000 a day to, to the day they relinquish it or $20,000 a day or $50,000 a day, whatever they think is necessary to enforce their order. So on that hypothetical, I agree with you. On the true remedy, which is removal of the president for a high crime and misdemeanor, yes, it's always been a political question whether a Congress will do that. Clearly, this Congress won't do that. So then the question becomes, what's the remedy? Well, there's political remedy is voting them out. Well, but I think that I'm not entirely sure that it's clear because I do think Ryan and McConnell hate Trump almost as much as we do. So I think think that fine court orders is going to be a big, big leap for even them. Yes. Nixon did not. Nixon turned over the tapes. Remember that? Yes. Richard Nixon did. (laughs) If we want to measure on the slime scale. Now, Will would probably say, well, that was because Nixon thought that they would impeach him if he did. Oh, they had basically had already issued articles of impeachment. Yes. Uh, and they were going to vote on it, and he thought the Senate would convict him and remove him from office, I think would be Will's response to me. Will, now you're there, but I'm still responding for you anyway. <laughs> that's a good point. The reality is that the stick, the steel behind the velvet was the fact that the Congress, the Senate would remove him from office. And is that here? Probably not. I still think it's not dependent on anybody. how much they, well, no, I still think it depends on how much they want to get rid of him for other reasons. And, I agree with that, too. And I think that they they like Mike Pence and they know they can work with him and they look at him as, you know, the promised land. So I think they want to get from where they are to that. And, you know, even speaking even to someone who's LGBT and who hates Mike Pence, there's a point at which I, I look at Mike Pence and think, well, at least he's not an ass out of the Russians. At least he's not crazy. Yes. Yeah. I was going to say he's I, sane. I, you know, I live in his state. So, you know, I, I been through I, he did some crazy things and he's a bad man in many ways but he's not crazy he's not, he's not likely yeah. I, I think that's an important characteristic in a president not being crazy yeah when we're trump is crazy i yeah. mean trump he's not well mentally i think people underestimate that very real fact they you know they think he's a bore and he's obnoxious but he's also not well mentally but beyond that of course he's got what do the russians have on him we don't know I mean, you talked about this, I think, early in the podcast, but this arrest of these Soviet agents, Soviet yeah. Russian agents who worked at the FSB. Yep. You know, the, we need to find out what's at the bottom of this. Did they get burned by Michael Flynn? Oh, or, that's an how about this? Yeah. Is Trump being bugged or is there a mole in his inner circle? It's I very th- possible. I think it's worse than that. I think he actually has yeah. personal connections, but that's. That's just my yes. opinion, and you know maybe who he's knows. doing it deliberately. Yeah. Maybe he is the true Manchurian candidate. These things we don't know. Yeah, and, and it's amazing that we're just sitting here, and the made the media just let it go. Well, Even that's now, like, the Democratic Party needs to wrap themselves in the American flag, call Trump a traitor, and actually fight this and talk about the United States. And anytime he opens his mouth, we just throw Russia imagery at him. We really do need to like seize whatever populism we can at this point to counter him. Folks, you have been listening to Hopping Mad with Armando Lorenz. And thank you for being here, Armando. And being Hopping Mad with you. (laughs) (laughs) All right, everybody. Today we we were on theme, right? I think we were. I think we were. Catch you next time, everybody.